It's been almost 50 years since the Fair Housing Act was passed to grant African Americans access to homes in areas they've been barred from by whites. But we have not yet seen full integration of cities and suburbs across the country. And that is by plan, not by accident, according to my guest. Today on the Modern Law Library, I'm speaking with Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book? I used to specialize almost entirely on writing about education policy, and I came to understand as a result that the achievement gap between African-American and white children was primarily the result not of lower teacher expectations, which was the conventional view in the early 21st century, but it was the result primarily of the social and economic conditions that disadvantaged children come to school with that leaves them unprepared. So if children come from homes with low parental education or where they're in poor health and are absent a lot or where they're under economic stress because of parental unemployment, many of these conditions, they can't achieve at the same levels on average. Of course, there are always exceptions, but on average, uh, they can't achieve at the same levels as children who come to school prepared and in good health and from highly literate families. That's a problem for schools, but the problem becomes exaggerated, accentuated, when children with these kinds of disadvantages are concentrated in single schools. We call those segregated schools, and schools are today segregated more certainly in the North than they ever have been in history, and in the South more than they have been since 1980 when integration efforts ended. The reason schools are segregated is because the neighborhoods they're located are in are segregated. So I began to question whether the conventional view that neighborhood segregation was simply de facto, as the Supreme Court has decreed, or whether there might have been something more involved in how our neighborhoods became segregated. Because if, as the Supreme Court says, our neighborhoods are only de facto segregated by private action, by personal preferences, by prejudiced real estate agents or people's choices, if that's the only cause of of residential segregation or the main cause of residential segregation, then it's very difficult to think of how, on a systematic basis, we can reverse it. But if, in fact, neighborhoods have been segregated by government action, explicit, racially explicit government action, designed to create segregation in every metropolitan area in this country, then it's a constitutional violation. Our racial landscape is actually a constitutional violation, and it not only permits remedy, but requires remedy. So that's how I came to this point, and I began to research uh, the extent to which the government was involved in the segregation of metropolitan areas, of neighborhoods. And the more I researched, the more I concluded that the government's involvement was not just tangential, but it was the controlling factor, and that all of the de facto considerations that we commonly talk about could not have had the power that they had if not for government structure, requirement, and promotion of residential segregation. Now, Richard, I'm speaking to you from Chicago, and I live in Chicago. I have family from Chicago, and it is one of the most segregated cities in the nation, as I understand it. And you talk about the conventional wisdom, and I've heard 
those justifications too. They say, oh, well, you know, there's a there's Greek town, there's Chinatown. Immigrants tend to move into areas where they already know people. Uh, this is how it happened. You know, people just wanted to group culturally, and that's why we're segregated. Can you talk about why that conventional wisdom does not answer the full question? Yes. Well, first of all, obviously, African-Americans are not immigrants. They speak English. They uh, don't need to uh, live in neighborhoods where their language is spoken, where it's a different language is spoken. African-Americans were segregated in Chicago in two main ways, and the ways are no different from in every metropolitan area. First, the first civilian public housing in this country was uh, built during the New Deal, uh, began with the Public Works Administration in 1933. And it was segregated public housing. In many cases uh, across the country, the housing was segregated by demolishing neighborhoods that were integrated because uh, during the mid-20th, early 20th century, there were many integrated neighborhoods. Workers didn't have automobiles, and they lived in the same neighborhoods because they had to be close enough to their workplaces to be able to walk to work. And the Public Works Administration began by building civilian housing throughout the country on a segregated basis. Uh, Chicago is probably a place where there was some segregation before the New Deal came into play because Chicago had a substantial migration of African Americans during World War I. But even in places that had substantial African American migration during World War I, there were integrated neighborhoods that the federal government segregated in this way. Uh, Langston Hughes, in his autobiography, talks about growing up in an integrated neighborhood in Cleveland during World War I. There were Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants. He talks about how his best friend was Polish, as he dated a Jewish girl. The Public Works Administration came into that very neighborhood in Cleveland and demolished it, raised it on the grounds that it was a slum, and built segregated public housing, creating a pattern of segregation in Cleveland that exists today. Public housing continued during World War II for defense workers moving to uh, areas of defense production, in many cases moving to areas where there had been no African-American populations before the war. And the federal government built housing for defense workers, again, on a segregated basis, creating a segregated pattern. Most of the public housing that the federal government built in the 1930s, 1940s, was explicitly designed primarily for white families, white middle-class families. It was not a program for poor people. During the Depression, it was a program for middle-class families, working-class families who were homeless in the Depression. During World War II, it was a a program for well-paid defense workers. So this was not a, a program, a subsidy program for poor people. Whites were primarily served by uh, the public housing program. Uh, In my book, the frontispiece of the book is a picture of Franklin Roosevelt handing keys to the 100,000th family to receive a public housing unit in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The family is obviously middle-class white. The crowd surrounding and cheering is all white. This was mostly the pattern of public housing. Well, the 1950s, These public housing projects for whites began to develop large vacancies, while the programs for African-Americans, the projects for African-Americans, had long waiting lists. The condition became so conspicuous that eventually all public housing was opened to African-Americans, and uh, 
they became poorer and poorer as industry left the central cities, and we got the kind of public housing that's stereotypical today. The reason that white projects had these enormous vacancies was another federal program. The Federal Housing Administration, beginning in the 1930s, 40s, and into the 50s, subsidized mass production builders of giant subdivisions and smaller subdivisions across the country on condition, on explicit condition, that no homes be sold to African Americans. The uh, most famous of these probably is Levittown, just east of uh, New York. Uh, in Levittown, 17,000 homes. Uh, the Levitt Company could never have assembled the capital to uh, build 17,000 homes, for which they had no buyers. The federal government guaranteed Levitt's bank loans on condition that no homes be sold to African Americans, and with the additional condition that every deed in the home uh, contain a clause prohibiting resale to African Americans. So these two programs work together. Housing, public housing, was built on a segregated basis in the central cities. Then the New Deal and subsequent administrations under the Federal Housing Administration subsidized whites in those projects, as well as whites in the cities around, in the areas around the projects in the central cities, to move to all white suburbs, creating in effect, a white noose around uh, urban areas where African Americans lived. Uh, Chicago is, is a good example of this, as you mentioned. Uh, there was actually a Supreme Court case in, uh, that uh, found that the city of Chicago, the Chicago Housing Authority, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development had purposely used public housing to concentrate African Americans in ghetto areas. The case, Gautreaux, uh, versus uh, Hills, uh, Carla Hills was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development at the time, found that this was a purposeful policy. And uh, this was similar other cases, uh, Supreme Court cases and lower court cases found the same thing in other cities. There were settlements of cases in um, Baltimore, in Dallas, finding that the public housing authorities had used public housing to concentrate African Americans in central cities. Back in the 1930s, when uh, public housing was first built in Chicago, housing for whites were built outside those central cities. Um, the Trumbull homes, for example, were built outside uh, the central city of Chicago. The Ida B. Wells project was built in a, an area that was already populated by African Americans. So these two programs combined to uh, segregate metropolitan areas. There were many, many other programs in addition to public housing and to the FHA's subsidization of builders that uh, federal programs, state programs, and local programs that create and affect the jury segregation system. But those two were the main ones. So you did briefly mention state and local. What were the most powerful tools that more local governments used in order to exclude African-Americans in favor of whites? Well, there are many of them. Uh, start with the state. Uh, many people uh, uh, talk about de facto segregation as something that the real estate agents, for example, uh, contributed to. Uh, real estate agents are uh, a private industry. They are heavily regulated by the state, and I'm not suggesting in any way that simply because somebody is regulated by the state that this is a, uh, a form of state action that would completely destroy the distinction between state and private action and uh, being inconsistent with the kind of free country we live in. But the 
real estate agent is somewhat different. The National Association of Real Estate Boards had a code of ethics, a published code of ethics, that prohibited real estate agents from uh, selling homes to African Americans in white neighborhoods. So the actions of real estate agents were not simply the rogue actions of private agents acting in a discriminatory way. This was the official policy of every real estate broker in the country and every real estate agent who worked for brokers in the country. For the uh, for state governments to license real estate agents who were explicitly, openly committed in their published code of ethics to segregate metropolitan areas was, I think, a violation of the 14th Amendment. Uh, in, uh, there was a very interesting case in Michigan uh, in 1960. Michigan, the Gross Point, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, uh, the real estate uh, uh, association there had a point system for defining to whom real estate agents could uh, sell houses. And the point system, uh, it gave the most points to uh, Anglo-Saxons. It went down the list. Uh, when you got to the bottom, Jews had very few points, and African-Americans had none. Eventually, the uh, Michigan uh, Real Estate Commission ordered the Gross Point Real Estate uh, Organization to uh, end this point system on the grounds that it was uh, discriminatory and a violation of Michigan policy and Michigan state constitution. They gave this order. The state legislature then passed a law rescinding the uh, commission's order. The uh, governor of Michigan then vetoed the state legislature's uh, action rescinding the order. The Michigan Supreme Court then entered it and found that uh, real estate commissions had no jurisdiction over uh, racial discrimination. Um, I might add that real estate commissions systematically uh, withhold licenses from real estate agents for not paying their alimony on time for all kinds of uh, ethical violations that have nothing directly to do with the sale of real estate. But racial discrimination was not something that the Michigan Supreme Court said real estate agents could, uh, the real estate commission could regulate. So this was a very, very power, this relationship between state government and officially organized real estate boards that practice as an open policy racial discrimination is a form of state action that contributed not to a de facto uh, segregation situation, but to a de jure one. At the local level, zoning in many places was explicitly designed to exclude uh, lower-income families by name, African-Americans, and in many cases, immigrants. Uh, very interestingly, the, uh, in 1917, the uh, Supreme Court found that local cities could not zone particular blocks or neighborhoods for uh, all-white or all-black residency uh, and ownership. The grounds of the Supreme Court's decision was not because the Supreme Court in 1917 was uh, uh, an integrationist Supreme Court, but because they believed, as they did in every other area of uh, economic life, that a zoning law by race restricted the ability of homeowners to sell their property to whomever they chose. It was a property rights decision. In 1926, uh, the court heard another case where Following the uh, 1917 decision, cities across the country uh, attempted to uh, effectively segregate by race without doing it explicitly by adopting zoning ordinances for the first time. 
a lower court in the, the Cleveland area, in Euclid, Ohio, found that the zoning ordinance there was obviously designed to evade the 1917 decision and that it had to take judicial notice of the racial motivation behind the zoning ordinance. But the Supreme Court in 1926 upheld the zoning ordinance. Interestingly, in in 20 years of of that Supreme Court, from the 1910s through the mid-1930s, the Supreme Court consistently rejected laws that interfered with property rights. The only exception was this 1926 decision where it upheld the right of um, cities to zone. It denied that the purpose was a race. It said that it was simply because uh, apartments were a nuisance in middle-class communities. But this was the only time when the Supreme Court upheld uh, an abridgment of property rights was in the, the Euclid decision on zoning in 1926. So Throughout the country, uh, zoning laws were adopted to prevent lower-income families, particularly uh, African-Americans and immigrants initially, and then African-Americans alone, from integrating neighborhoods. Uh, You mentioned Chicago. There were a couple of very uh, well-known cases in Chicago where uh, cities rezoned as soon as they found that uh, African-Americans were moving in. There was an Arlington case, uh, Arlington, Illinois case, a Wheeling, uh, Illinois case. In both cases, uh, zoning laws were manipulated to prevent African Americans from moving into the community, even though they already bought property and had started construction. Uh, in one case, uh, uh, a builder was building uh, apartments or, or homes, rather, that uh, he said he planned to integrate, and the city uh, passed a uh, bond issue uh, to seize the land uh, and create it and use it for park space. The Supreme Court, again, said that uh, this was okay because the motivation of voters uh, could not be taken into account. The park district itself didn't say that the reason was race. So we have lots of cases like this across the country demonstrating local uh, involvement in residential segregation in every metropolitan area. So, Richard... In conversations that I have had, it seems to be easier to get people to acknowledge that intentional segregation was imposed by whites on African Americans and that this was a terrible thing that shouldn't have happened than it is to then get them on board with, and we must remedy this. Can you talk about the ways in which we as a country could start to do something to remedy this hundred years, at least, of specifically, you know, segregated housing and the damage that it did to the wealth of black families? Uh, Yes, but I think that most people don't understand that the discrimination against African Americans was state-sponsored to the extent that it was, because the notion of de facto segregation is pretty much a consensus. As I said earlier, I first started looking at this from an educational point of view. In 2007, the um, Supreme Court prohibited uh, the cities of Louisville and Seattle from implementing very token integration plans on the grounds that both Louisville and Seattle were de facto segregated. And that was a, a view that was accepted by both the plurality opinion by uh, Chief Justice Roberts and the dissenting opinion by Justice Breyer. So the notion of de facto segregation is accepted across the political spectrum. 
I think the first thing that needs to be done is the American people need to uh, relearn. It was once well known, but relearn this history of very explicit uh, segregation because we're unlikely to adopt the kinds of remedies necessary unless we understand that it's a constitutional obligation. If this all happened by accident or by private discrimination, it's very easy to think that it can only be undone by accident. Well, I can speak to my own personal experience reading The Color of Law. I, as a white woman, was able to see through your book the various stages at which my family directly benefited from many of these policies. My grandfather was born to a sharecropper and was desperately poor and had to leave school in eighth grade and when, go to work when his father died at age 14. So, yes, that's a, that's a terrible beginning. But he was able to be hired by the Tennessee Valley Authority, who you speak about. He was able to keep that job through the Depression. He was able to move his family to neighborhoods in which his children were safe and the schools were close and good. And within a single generation, you know, two of his sons were able to get law degrees and become lawyers. And that kind of social mobility was definitely not available through the same means to black families. So just speaking as a reader of your book, that was very eye-opening to me. Well, let me give you an example. I, I mentioned before Levittown, which was explicitly segregated by the federal government, built as a white-only project uh, as a condition of the federal guarantees that Levitt had. In the late 1940s, when that project was first opened, and this is true of projects like it all over the country, a daily city south of San Francisco, the Westlake subdivision in that community, and similar subdivisions all over the country built with FHA guarantees on a similarly required segregated basis. In the late 1940s, those developments uh, sold homes for around $8,000 apiece, or not quite $100,000 in today's terms. Uh, that's about twice national median income. Working class families uh, can afford to buy a home at twice national median income with an FHA-insured mortgage. If they were veterans in the late 1940s, uh, they had no down payment, so black workers and white workers equally could have afforded to buy homes in Levittown or Daly City or any of the others in between. Today, those homes in Levittown and Daly City and elsewhere sell for $300,000, seven times national median income. They are no longer affordable to working-class families, to African-Americans. The white families who bought homes in Levittown and, and Daly City and elsewhere in the late 1940s gained over the next two generations two hundred, $300,000 in wealth. Black families that were prohibited from moving into those developments, even though their income supported their ability to do so just as much as white incomes did, gained none of that wealth. They lived in apartments. They lived in areas of the central city of concentrated disadvantage. Over the next two generations, their families were not able, as whites were, to send their children to college with that wealth. They were not able to support their aging parents with that wealth. They were not able to take care of medical emergencies. Today, nationally, on a national basis, African Americans have about 60% of white families' incomes. There's an income ratio of 60% black to white on average. 
African-American families have about 5% on average of the wealth of white families. That enormous difference between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is almost entirely attributable to federal segregationist housing policy of the mid-20th century. And it underlies many of the social problems that we have today when it comes to racial inequality. Families in this country, middle-class families, gain most of their wealth, if they have wealth at all, from equity in their homes. African-Americans were denied that opportunity. So you began by talking about the Fair Housing Act. Well, we passed the Fair Housing Act in 1968, which prohibited future discrimination. That's important, and we've had some small integration since then, because discrimination, while not entirely eliminated, the Fair Housing Act has done a lot to eliminate it. But for most African Americans, it's an empty promise, because telling African Americans today, who are working class, who have jobs, who are employed, who should be able to afford homes, telling them today, okay, you can now move to Levittown, where we prohibited you from moving before, is an empty hope because those homes are now unaffordable. And this is true, the same thing is true all over the country. So the residue of these federal policies remain with us, and that's a very, very difficult thing to undo. It's so difficult that I believe it will not be addressed or even thought about until the time comes when we understand that we have a constitutional violation here that requires a remedy. You made a very persuasive case for that in this book, The Color of Law. Were we to be in a place politically where remedies were seen as absolutely necessary and things that we we must do constitutionally to repair some of the damage done to African-American citizens and, and others, what sorts of things could we do if there was the political will behind it? Well, obviously the most extreme thing we could do is to subsidize African-American families to be able to move to suburbs that are now unaffordable. That's a very extreme position. Um, But the premise of your question is that we would understand the constitutional necessity of doing it. So I'll begin there. A somewhat more modest proposal would be to prohibit suburbs from maintaining zoning ordinances that exclude a mix of housing, as many suburbs keep out African Americans and other middle class, working class people by maintaining zoning ordinances that require homes to be built on very large lot sizes or with a very large number of bedrooms or big setbacks from the street. We could repeal, order the repeal of those zoning ordinances, make them uh, unlawful and require that suburbs uh, permit the construction of townhouses and single-family homes on uh, smaller lot sizes that would be affordable to African Americans. Short of that, there are many programs that we could reform that help poor people with housing. The Section 8 voucher program, for example, the Housing Choice Voucher Program, is grossly inadequate to uh, help Uh, African-Americans who are locked in low-income neighborhoods to find housing in better neighborhoods. Only about a quarter of the families who are eligible for vouchers get them because the appropriations are inadequate. It's not an entitlement. 
And beyond that, most landlords in the country are permitted to discriminate against Section 8 voucher holders. That is, they don't have to accept a tenant, even under the Fair Housing Act, if they have a Section 8 voucher. That permission to discriminate should be removed. As discrimination against Section 8 voucher holders should be considered a violation of the Fair Housing Act. That would be a very modest step that would permit African Americans to move into more middle-class uh, neighborhoods. We have another program called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, which is administered by the uh, Department of the Treasury. This program also, like the Section 8 voucher program, tends to concentrate African Americans in low-income neighborhoods uh, because those are the neighborhoods that the developers find it easier to use their tax credits in. Uh, there's little community opposition. Land is cheaper. Uh, there are a lot of people, uh, prospective tenants, who will see their new buildings uh, if they build them in already segregated neighborhoods. But that program could be reformed to create incentives, very powerful incentives, for developers to build low-income housing tax credit projects in more middle-class communities. So those are a few reforms that we could enact, but uh, as you said, I don't think there's political support for any of them at this point, and there won't be so long as we think that segregation only happened informally by a million individual choices from which a government was not involved. So Richard, as a final question, I want to talk to you about the use of language. I've been referring to remedies as have you, but... There's also terminologies like reparations, which uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, used in his pretty famous by now, I think, article for, I believe it was the Atlantic Magazine. You also, in this book, are careful to use the term ghetto, and you avoid saying people of color when you specifically mean African Americans. Can you talk about how you feel our use of language either sanitizes or covers up actual history and the actual things that have gone on? Well, I think there are separate issues here. I don't think using the term remedies instead of reparations is a, a language problem because reparations are typically thought of as monetary payments. And perhaps monetary payments can be part of the solution, but uh, remedies is a much broader term that includes reparations as well as policies designed to integrate. So I don't think most people, for example, would think of a, a law that prohibited suburbs from maintaining exclusionary zoning ordinances, uh, they would not think of that as a form of reparations. It's a remedy, which is far broader than reparations. With regard to the other terms that you're talking about, uh, yes, I think we have uh, sanitized our language, and it's a way of avoiding confronting what our government has done. When we talk about people of color, what we do is obscure the distinction between a group that has been systematically segregated by government action and a group of uh, immigrants who may have come to this country and, as you indicated earlier, uh, may have settled in communities initially with compatriots who speak their own language and uh, have their own customs. This is a very different situation. Uh, there are many uh, low-income Hispanics today living in communities with other low-income Hispanics. And as the generations go on, they move out. They move into integrated neighborhoods uh, throughout the metropolitan areas. Uh, the assimilation of Hispanics is quite rapid in this country today. Uh, intermarriage rates between Hispanics and whites are at a very high level. Uh, that's not the case with African Americans. 
So blurring the distinction between a group which has been systematically segregated by government action and a group which is coming to this country with low incomes and uh, trying to make their way and gradually assimilating prevents us from confronting the reality. The term ghetto, I don't shy away from. A ghetto is a neighborhood where a particular ethnic or racial group is circumscribed, prevented from moving out of, denied uh, the services that exist elsewhere. We're not afraid to use the term ghetto when we talk about uh, Jewish ghettos in uh, Eastern Europe. This is the way in which we've uh, treated African Americans in this country. And by uh, talking about the inner city as some kind of a euphemism for a ghetto, we avoid confronting this history. You know, when whites move into um, areas which they're gentrifying, we don't call those whites inner city residents. We know exactly what we mean when we use the term inner city, but we use that term to avoid confronting the kinds of policies that we've implemented to segregate African Americans into ghettos. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. This is a lot to chew over. So if our audience is interested in learning more about these issues or picking up this book, uh, what should they do to either reach you, read what you've written, or purchase the book? Well, they can purchase the book anywhere, at bookstores or online retailers. If they want to reach me, they can email me at r-i-r-o-t-h at e-p-i that's Edward Peter Ingrid .org, and I would be glad to correspond with any of your listeners. I believe you also, under protest, uh, have started a blog. Where could people read your blog entries? Well, my blog is part of the Working Economics blog of the Economic Policy Institute, and I write frequently there. And if um, your listeners go to the Economic Policy Institute, the Working Economics blog is is on the front page, and uh, they can click on the older blogs to find mine. I also have a page on the Economic Policy Institute website. Um, there's a tab at the top called Experts, and if you scroll down there to my name, you can find many uh, articles I've written on this topic as well as references to this book. Well, thank you again, Richard. And for any of our listeners who are interested in picking up this book, again, the title is The Color of Law a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed it, please recommend it to others and rate and subscribe on iTunes.